I get asked for road stories a lot. After being in a rock band for 17 years, you rack up quite a few of them. But to be honest, I'm not sure how interesting they are to anyone outside our inner circle and to the people who are in our line of work. Having said that, when you get me going alongside a few other road dogs backstage, behind the scenes, and off the record, of course, stories do start flying around like hotcakes with wings. And I understand it's a natural inclination for the outsider to want to hear rock stories from musicians in the bands themselves. Who wouldn't want to hear from so-and-so about recording that legendary album or the time they jammed with this person or played that notable show? Everyone wants to hear it from the horse's mouth. However, in betrayal to bands everywhere, what most people consider to be the quote-unquote source is usually the farthest point from any truthful recount. A lot of people in rock bands were most likely heavily impaired when said event happened, and the story left for them to tell is one filled with embellishment, speculation, and total bullshit. If they happen to have their wits about them when the story did occur, it's still filled with ego, bluster, bravado, and yes, still bullshit. Whenever I hear a rock story a little too outrageous for my ears, I get a feeling much like one does when watching a 10th generation VHS tape played through a Betamax machine. There are kernels of truth somewhere in there. You just can't tell which ones. You know that amazing band you love? That fearless band that brazenly takes on the man and embodies rebellion through their songs that wallpaper all of our lives? Well, that band, and every other band, whether you realize it or not, have a babysitter. Some have babysitters. These are people employed to soothe and coddle egos, avoid drama, read the small print, keep people in line, make sure the boat stays afloat, and gets everyone to point B while staying on target. They're usually called tour managers, the responsible all-seeing eyes whose workplace usually amounts to minding wankers and nitwits. And yes, I am counting myself part of that ragtag gang of wankers. Although over the years, in our camp at least, JC and I have found ourselves, on occasion, babysitting the babysitters. The tour managers and other members of the touring crew outside of the band are usually the ones who have the best stories, stripped of the usual bias to favor whosoever's telling it, and replaced with a more or less honest, clear-headed, direct account of the tale in question. On rare occasions, it's been a little too candid, and there have been times that my respect and reverence for certain popular music figures have soured at the hands of a roadie's tale. But most times, hearing a story not so often heard from behind the scenes only makes you love that band more. Take Doug Goodman, tour manager to the industry's top bands. We got to know Doug through mutual parties. Maybe I'm wrong, but I see Doug somewhat like a Harvey Keitel wolf character in Pulp Fiction. You know, the unobtrusive overseer keeping huge productions on the road and with a smile, no matter what the demands or complications involved. And while Doug's resume reads like a who's who of popular music, those are the bands I'm least interested in hearing about. Had this been someone else's podcast, this episode with Doug Goodman could have possibly shed an insider's POV on a lot of people's favorite bands. But if your interests run a little askew like mine, get ready for stories strictly about DRI, Mordred, 
Paul Bailoff, Death Angel, Voivod, and Slayer. I would like to thank Blue Mic Microphones and Skull Candy Headphones for supporting this podcast. And to everyone listening, every time someone leaves a review on iTunes or a tweet, or they tell me in person that they listen to an episode, I'm most flattered and very thankful. So please, thank you for listening. This is great. Okay, here it is. Doug Goodman is this episode's guest on the official Danko Jones podcast, and it starts now. So this is the first time I think on the podcast we I, uh, I've brought on a listener of the podcast <laughs> yeah, uh, to do the. Uh, to I have a feeling that most of your guests listen to it. I'll, I'll bet that Duff's listen to it and Harold's listen to it. And... I'd like to think so, at least to their own episodes, <laughs> yeah, just to right. see how how it turned out. Yeah. Um, but speaking of Harold, that's how it started out um, with uh, with you and I talking about. That's a good. That's a good place to start, considering. You told me that you heard the Harold Oyman podcast, and yeah. then we started from there. So, yeah. how do you know Harold, who's a past guest on the podcast? Harold and I are kids going to metal shows back in the early '80s, early '90s. I guess early '80s through the late '80s in Northern California. And he's a guy who had a camera, and I was a guy who. I actually, I guess I had a tape recorder. I taped most of those shows. And uh, you are yeah. actually in his book. Yeah, I saw times, you a few, few times. times. Uh, there's one notable photo uh, where it's like Slayer, Suicidal Tendencies, and maybe another the band. Exodus guys are in there. Possessed and guys. You're you're on you're on top of two guys' shoulders with a Devo shirt. Yeah. <laughs> so if anyone I wore that has... shirt all the time. That was like that was my shirt. And like, and and what were you doing in the photo? Uh, we're all just in a big pile up and I jumped up on top of it because I'm a tall guy and I could jump up on top of stuff. <laughs> so what was, we're just having fun. We're just, it was somebody, I guess it was, I don't remember if that's Harold's or Brian's photo, but somebody said, hey guys, take a picture. And I jumped up on top of it and that that's that main photo. And then there's, there's a series of photos on the other page where Toby Rage comes in basically doing the same thing I did from the back. Toby does it from sort of the side front, jumps into it, and smashes me in the face, which is documented. Back in those days, there wasn't video, so but it's documented on consecutive photos, which is pretty entertaining. <laughs> and you, so. you're, you're, um, you have the distinction of being the first ever Slayer tour manager, right? I, I, Sort of. People call me that. We never called me the tour manager. We always referred to me as the tour guide. And how was that first Slayer tour? It was amazing. It was just, uh, like I said, when I met Harold, we're, we're just kids going to metal shows. I met the Slayer guys when they first came to Northern California. They're from L.A. Um, they came up to play the Berkeley Keystone opening for Laws Rocket oh, in wow. uh I guess it would be January, maybe early February of 1984. And I'm the first one in line for the show. I live 100 miles north at that point of San Francisco. And, um, but yeah, so I was there and the Slayer guys pull up in their van. They were, they were traveling with another band called Savage Grace. Right. And, um, that I met the guys that night and just, you know, we became friends and went to all the various other shows and what's, 
seven, eight months later, I'm driving across the country with him and Tom's Camaro and we're playing Larry's Hideaway in Toronto and, you know, with, with, uh, Razor. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh wow. Okay. You know, and I met all kinds of friends at that show who I still have. I mean, you remember Ray Wallace? Did you ever know Ray? Yes. Or, uh, did you know Big Ray Moss? No. Who's kind of Ray's partner. They did shows sometimes, the two Rays. Right. You know, I mean, I met... I know, knew Ray, though. Ray Wallace passed away yes. a few years back. Um, but Ray Moss was at our show in Toronto a couple weeks ago. Okay. You know, I mean, we're still friends. He, you know, we stay in touch. 20, what's that, 29 years later, you know? Just, that's the thing. That's part of why I think all of us like metal in some ways. It's like, we like metal for the metal, but there's also these friendships that build up that really don't seem to go away unless people just fall off the scene completely for some reason but as long as they have any sort of interest and even when they don't have interest the friends are still there because you still have the, the the love of what was you know even if you don't love metal anymore you still love what you loved at that point you know what I mean does that make sense are you still in touch with the Slayer guys today yeah, yeah. I talked to Tom actually talked to Tom's wife a couple weeks ago that she was talking about coming to uh, one of these shows bringing mm-hmm. the kids Tom's on tour and um, we were on Soundwave together earlier this year when Slayer were on yeah. so you uh, obviously you got yeah. to hang out with them whenever you know we don't uh, you know Tom lives in Texas Dave lives in well Dave not in the band anymore obviously but um, you know they're sort of scattered we don't like hang out you know when, I, when they're around I cross paths I see them me and Dave get together every once in a while in town um, hadn't seen Jeff very much. Jeff was always super quiet anyway. Never really saw anybody when he went off the tour. Um, actually, his memorials were it was the last time I saw Dave. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they're they're guys who I knew, and from their instrumental and what I do for a living, some ways I hate, hate to say I'm instrumental in what they do because it wouldn't have mattered. They'd still be where they are without me. But I'm still you know part of their story back in those days. Right. And yeah, we're, we yeah. We hang out whenever we see each other. <laughs> now, we started off talking about Harold, but there, uh, Harold is currently the bass player in DRI. Yeah. And you have a connection with DRI I, as well. I tour managed DRI. I actually met my wife at a DRI show when she worked for DRI's label. <laughs> so that was pre-Harold. Oh, of course. So, yeah. Although I knew Harold, but yeah, that was, uh, I think John Menor was the bass player for most of my stuff with them. In fact, that maybe all of it. You throw band names out like crazy and... and <laughs> You know, we've we've seen you on tour on the road with huge names like Green Day and Smashing Pumpkins. You're here on this tour with Jane's Addiction. Yeah. Um, and that's great. But for me, when you throw out a band name like Mordred, I have to ask you, <laughs> what? Uh, tell me everything about Mord being with Mordred, please. Uh, you know, honestly, I don't even remember a whole... I have minimal, I didn't tour with them for very long. I did a couple weeks in the states with them supporting DRI. Okay. Um, uh, we we left the DRI tour, went to Europe with Overkill, and if I remember right, all the shows were in Germany except for I think two in uh, in Holland. I did two or three different tours where the only dates we did were in Germany and Holland, which in the scheme of like this last Pumpkins tour I did, we played 15 countries or something, you right. know, and to go to Europe and play two countries is slightly weird and it, it's one thing to go to, if you're going and you're only doing two shows and you do two countries but you know like that overkill mortar tour I, I think was 11 or 12 dates mm-hmm. and two were in holland and the rest of them were in germany you know we did like a german tour we played more tours in germany than you know it's nearly 
half as long as this tour of the states. And Germany's, what, as big as Texas or so? I didn't you know? even know Mordred were big enough to even do a European tour. And... Well, I don't know that they were necessarily, uh-huh. uh, you know, since we're the support act. But yeah, they were oh, def- they right. were big enough to go. Right. Um, I don't remember that we necessarily made any money. My main memory of that tour is Scott. Scott's a singer, right? Mm-hmm. My main memory is Scott not being able to eat. Because you're talking... 1990, I think, maybe 89, but I'm pretty sure it's 90, and he's a vegetarian. Right. And vegetarians didn't exist back in those days, yeah, yeah. and they definitely didn't exist in Europe. I can remember specifically going into truck stops, rest plots in Germany, and Scott would be eating French fries and lettuce. Yeah. That was it. Yeah, yeah. That was all he ate for two weeks because that's all he could get. It was, I mean, ketchup turned into a vegetable because mm-hmm. it was better than nothing. They didn't that you you couldn't get anything else, <laughs> you right. know. And what kind of oil the French fries were cooked in? That wasn't it. Didn't matter because if that's that the point, only food yeah. you can get, you're yeah. sucking it up. Yeah. you know. Uh, no. Do you have any like people ask me all the time, and and I honestly cannot think on the spot about stories or anecdotes or whatever. But do you have any specific memories that come to mind from that first Slayer tour? Uh, in Europe or in this, I, I have so many. Actually, yeah, just partially because so many people ask me about it all the time. Yeah, I mean, like you said, you know, I've toured with some fairly decent, well-known bands. You know, I mean, Green Day sold a couple records. Mm-hmm. You know, Jewel, and I mean, I've done all kinds of things. Nobody cares about anybody I've ever worked for except for except for Slayer. Like anybody, even the Green Day guys ask me Slayer stories. <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, and it was an amazing experience just because I'm. I'm just some kid working in a grocery store, and and I the first U.S. tour when we were at Larry's, I'm the only guy getting paid, because I had a Union grocery store gig. I wasn't getting paid because I was working for Slayer. I was getting paid because I was getting paid for my grocery store gig on my paid vacation. Right. Tom Araya took time off from his job as a respiratory therapist. I don't think Jeff had a job. Carrie, I think already was raising like you know snakes and mice as he still does today, selling to pet stores and things. Um, he still does that? I think so, yeah. Pretty wow. sure. Yeah. yeah, he's a huge snake guy. And the mice come, you know, secondary because you need something to feed all your snakes. Right. <laughs> wow. Um, to buy a snake off Carrie King. Yeah, right? I, yeah, I think you can. Easily. I hate snakes, but I'll buy one just so I can say that. We actually had one on tour one time with us. And I don't think it was that tour. I think it was the Venom tour the next year. We had it in a... How in, appropriate. <laughs> right? He bought it in the Carolina. It was a Venom tour because we we started the first show was in uh, Columbia, South Carolina. He bought it at a pet store somewhere in the Carolinas. We we made we he somebody built a box for it, and on one side of the box was like a little screen thing you could look into, like a, a cage. But it was solid walls all the way around except for on one side. There's a window. We had it sitting in the far back of the truck, so when you you know roll up the door, there it is, right there. But the screen is facing away from you when you open up the back of the truck. We pull into the, the Canadian, going into Canada, or maybe Montreal, but whatever. We're right, going into yeah. Canada, and it's fucking freezing. I can cuss here, can yeah. yeah, right. Okay, so it's fucking freezing. Um, and the border guy, they're going to search the truck. Uh, okay. You know, they're looking for the keys. I get the keys to the truck. And then um, we have some other cases, and that's one of them that has a lock on it. 
And the guy's like, what's in this box? And I said, it's all, it's a snake is what it is. It's like a 12 foot python or eight foot, I forget. I think that thing gets longer every time the story gets told by anybody, but it was, it was a long python. It was at least four or five feet and it probably wasn't eight to 12, but sounds so much better that way. So anyway, there's this python in this box and this, the border guy's like, what's in this box? And you know how border guys are mm-hmm. going into Canada. It's not as bad for you coming in the States, you know, it's, you know what it is. Oh, exactly. Yeah. And I'm like, it's, you know, it's cables and stuff for the guitars. Let me go get the keys. And he's like, no, just stay here. And I'm like, no, I'll go get the keys. I'm freezing. Let me go. I'll go get my jacket. No, stay here. Okay. I'm standing there freezing my balls off. And this guy is now sitting on top of the box that has the Python in it, opening up the guitar cases. He's got a little screwdriver and he's taking the backs off of the guitars, looking inside with a flashlight because, you know, of all the pot we could be smuggling right. in there or whatever. Yeah. So he's sitting on a case that has a, a live snake in it looking for drugs. I guess you couldn't really look for anything else because all the T-shirts were hidden in the base cabinets. They never bothered opening those up. Because back in the same today, it's a pain in the ass taking merchandise into Canada. Right. Well, you know, you guys probably do the same when you're coming down here. You have it shipped. Your merch company deals with we it. We do everything on the up and up. Yeah, yes. you have to. You yeah. have to. And yeah. we do the same thing. Yeah. James doesn't have any merch with us. We have none on the bus, but we had merch in Canada to show. It was shipped up by the merch company. Right. It's all legal. It's all yeah. good. But we never bring it with us because it's just a pain. You yeah. have to deal with it and stop, pay duty. It's just it's just not worth the effort. It's it's easier to ship it. Even though it might cost a little more with the shipping, it's just easier to do it. Well, back in those days, we did nothing on the up and up because A, we didn't even know what the up and up was. You don't know what the rules are until someone tells you about them and nobody at the border knows what most, of, there's a million rules. They follow 500,000 of them. They don't know what the other 500,000 are. Yeah. And you don't know which 500,000 are getting followed at the border you pull yep. up to. Yeah. You know? So, yeah, we forever were filling base cabinets with T-shirts because we had to take T-shirts with us because that's how we got paid. But we drove from Winnipeg, Canada, you know. To Toronto? To Toronto. Wow. So that's a lot of miles and, you know, gas and food. And, you know, we probably stayed in a hotel or two. I'm sure we were all in the same room. You know, it'd be a luxury for us to have a couple of rooms, you know. Mm -hmm. But so, yeah, it was all just smuggled in. This guy's just searching through everything and finally lets us go and doesn't see the snake. So he was sitting on top. <laughs> He's of, sitting oh. on top of a live python. Yeah. That's and awesome. we always just love that. Just the concept of it. Yeah. Yeah. Of and, course. He, and he purposely wouldn't let me because I tried this. Let me get the key. I'll open that box for you. I tried twice and he wouldn't let me. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, and I mean, uh, now you, you, um, Oh, you got to tell me because yesterday I saw you and you're wearing that day on the green shirt. <laughs> so I got to pry you for any Metallica stories. What, what, uh, what is my Metallica your... stories pale in comparison to, to, uh, to Harold for to sure. Harold. And, and, but uh, you were part of that whole scene. I was, and, I was part of the scene. Of, yeah. Yeah. There's in my head, there's been some sort of like, especially with books like murder in the front row, there's been this kind of, in my head, this mythologizing some, yeah, yeah. Of, of that whole time. So yeah. even any morsel of story regarding that whole scene and those bands is enough for me to the, like. Pay the thing attention. for me is that I think Harold may have said the same thing, but it's true. I think all of us from that era and, and from that area, it, it's all about like if you if you if you're my age and you grew up in New Jersey, mm-hmm. then. You heard about that stuff because of tape traders and things, and, and and some of those bands were touring and would come back and play. But 
you didn't you weren't there so you know you only heard about it in the same way that like you know i heard about holocaust and raven and all those sorts of bands in in the in the uk um you know an angel witch and whatever it's like we heard about them, but we didn't we weren't there we didn't get to experience it and and there is this mythology that builds yeah. up in your head over time that book comes out and it sort of illustrates how true some of the mythology mythology is yeah, it's it like does. it really was it's our yearbook and that's why Harold said that but we all say that I've crossed paths with so many people who are around back in that era people who were in the book people who weren't in the book because I'm in the book accidentally. I'm not in the book because I know Harold and, and I know Brian. One of the the first picture of me in the book, nobody even saw it. Nobody knew it was there. The Devo shirt's kind of a famous photo to a certain extent amongst us because I'm getting punched in the face by Toby, <laughs> you know, who's a good friend of mine. He wouldn't punch me on purpose. He's jumping into a crowd. My face happens to be at the same place as his elbow is. Oh well, bummer, you know. But we've all we've all seen that picture dozens of times over the years, where you know the rest of the world sees it and the rest of the world's first response is the fuck is that idiot doing that devo shirt well you know i like devo <laughs> well, well for me like i mean you know everybody's got enough james and lars and kirk and mustaine stories and, yeah and uh um and i don't Bailoff even have stories. many of those you know right well, bailoff i probably but, do but, but for, for me it's like um well actually bailoff stories i would love to hear but oh, man, but I it's also like um you know ron quintana and all yeah. those all those people to me are, are just legends yeah at this point it's more interesting because yeah. we've gotten our fair share of like yeah, oh understood. you know Lars was like this at the party I, you know we I never saw Metallica with Mustaine I went to the Metallica mansion the, the legendary Metallica mansion which is really just a track house in fucking El Cerrito a couple times but you know I didn't hang out and all, most of those guys I knew all those guys from and by those guys I mean the Ron Quintana's the Brian Lewis the Harold Oymans I knew all those guys because we were all in the same crowd, watching the same bands. You know, I didn't know the band guys necessarily as much. Those guys became friends with Metallica not because they were at a Metallica show, but because they're all going to the same parties. They're all going to the same restaurants. They all live near each other. They cross paths in other ways. I live out in the boonies. Like nobody's from where I'm from. Okay, no. well then what are your Bailoff stories? Bailoff was just a guy who they're similar to everybody else's stories, but he was a, such a character, and he he's the heart and soul of the Barrier metal scene. You know, you take Metallica out of the picture, and there's still a Bailoff. You take a Slayer out of the picture. He, well, Slayer's not from... Everybody played in Northern California. That book is amazing. It's all these fantastic photos, these fantastic bands playing in Northern California in that time period. Slayer's from L.A., but they seldom played in L.A. once they started playing up north because L.A. wasn't into that stuff. L.A. was more the glam, whatever, and love it or hate it. And we all loved a lot of that stuff. A lot of people will deny it, but that first Motley Crue record's great. It's amazing. The second Motley Crue record's great. It's awesome. And after that, they're probably still pretty good, but we were just over it and, you know, too deep into whatever, you know, Slayer, Metallic, Exodus, all that kind of stuff. But the bands stopped playing down there. They became our bands. You know, Metallica was from L.A. as well, but they moved to Northern California because, you know, legend has it, and I'm 99% sure legend's true, that Cliff says, well, I ain't moving down there. So they're like, okay, we'll move up there. But it wasn't, it was partially about Cliff, but it was partially about, well, we never play here anymore anyway because nobody really cares for us. 
and which isn't to say there's not a metal scene in LA that was the similar. You know, Brian Slagle, obviously from Metal Blade Records, is instrumental and in all that kind of thing. And there was plenty of people. I have friends that I met from down there, but I met them up in Northern California because, like, Megadeth never Megadeth's from LA, but they never played in LA ever. Their first shows were in Northern California. They drove 400 miles to play. You know, their first show ever is at Ruthie's. You know, with Kerry King playing guitar, <laughs> but. So I met like all my, a lot of my metal friends I met in Megadeth shows because they knew the only way they were going to see the band was to drive to Northern California. And then, you know, we all become friends because we're at these shows together. And, and Bailoff, if you take all those bands out, if you take all the, all the, big, the big bands that everyone thinks of as, you know, from all the bands in that book, the bigger ones aren't technically from Northern California. They moved there because right. we had this scene and it's not me bragging about the scene. It, the scene proved that we were fucking awesome because why else would they all move there? They would have moved to Albuquerque if that was where the scene was. You know what I mean? They didn't, they didn't bring the scene with them. They moved to where the scene was. We already had it. And Bailoff and Exodus are instrumental in that. And Bailoff, he's indescribable. I mean, uh, you know, Harold told a couple good stories on your, on your thing with him, but... There's nothing I can say better that he he's just this crazy man tying this into a Slayer story. We're driving to Winnipeg, Canada. Our last show was in San Francisco. <laughs> San Francisco to Winnipeg to Toronto. That was great routing. Wow. We were supposed to have done a show up here. We're in Portland today, mm -hmm. thereabouts. We were supposed to have done a show in Portland with what would have been the very first concert appearance in Northern California, in North America, by this little Danish band called Merciful Fate. And needless to say, we're all super excited about it. The show gets canceled because they had some sort of immigration issues. So we're driving, we being the Slayer guys, um, we're driving up here. We spend the night at KJ Doughton's house on the way up. You met KJ last night. I met him KJ yesterday. KJ started yeah. the Metallica fan club once upon a time. Um, we come through Portland anyway because Kerry King is pen pals with, and pen pals is probably the wrong term, but you know, tape traders, whatever, these kids, these metal kids in Portland. So we stop for no other reason than to sign autographs for these kids and get and the band take pictures with them, you know, Big, just metal fans. While we're doing that, kids are like, Merciful Fate's in town. They're doing an in-store. Really? Wow. <laughs> so I call the record store, get the owner, manager, whatever on the phone. Hey, I'm in town with Slayer. Mind if we come over to your in-store? Needless to say, they're super stoked about that. And Slayer and Merciful Fate end up doing an in-store together. Um, Star Magazine, you ever heard of Star? It's like one of those, like a National Enquirer kind of magazine you get in the oh, grocery store. Yes. There's a picture in a Star Magazine from right, like the next week, inside front cover of those guys and some story, you know, typical rumor, gossipy sort of story on metal ruining lives or something. It was pretty funny. Um, but... I totally forgot where the story even started. Uh. <laughs> Bailoff was was he was this guy. He was he was just one of us. In the same, all of them were one of us back in those days. Slayer started off with the makeup and everything. They really quickly got rid of that because of us, because we all hated it and thought it was funny looking and it was too LA. Um, but Bailoff was just totally one of us. Harold told a story about how he had, you see pictures of him back in the day, and he had like uh, things around his wrist. Yeah. And it was, what it was is they would just tear t shirts off of people, you know, who, th that, who they deemed to be posers. 
and it didn't matter whether they really were posers or not. And um, it's not actually until this very moment that I haven't think about the fact that I probably should have worried about my Devo shirt, but for some reason that I was always it just yeah. nothing ever happened to it. Um, I think it's because it, my Devo shirt was so extreme that nobody, you know, it's like Motley Crue shirt is a poser. Devo shirt is like, what the fuck is that guy oh, doing? That scares me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who's that crazy fucker? Um, but yeah, he had, he would, he and, and the Slay team, the legendary Slay team, which is basically just the Exodus guys and, and Toby Rage and Andy Anderson, um, you know, they're, call them the road crews a bit of a stretch but it's like you know just their buddies their pals in the same way i was a slayer that's what getting back to that i was never a tour manager i was a tour guide i'm a buddy of theirs hey you want to go on the road with us sure this is no different than any other group of guys who have a buddy who goes out and helps them and we i dropped one of dave lombardo's bass drums down a flight of stairs in uh, winnipeg canada loading into wellington's which is the place we played in the basement of a hotel and one of the guys at the bottom of the stairs, I don't know who it was to this day. I always think it was Tom, but I really don't know. I'm pretty sure it wasn't Dave because he probably would have reacted differently. Looked at me and said, how about if we carry the equipment and you go figure out who's paying us? That, in my head, is when I became their tour guide as opposed to you know some roadie guy. Right. Basically, I'm too much of a klutz to be a real roadie, so I became a tour manager. Stay in touch with Slayer guys, but never went to work for them again. I actually saw them on Rain and Blood a couple times in San Francisco at the Stone. Um, actually met my first girlfriend at that show who's coming to the show today <laughs> so um, did little miscellaneous other bands um, and uh, some buddies in a band uh, it's a little band you've heard of I think Death Angel yes I have asked me their manager was this girl named Kat Serdovsky who I knew from a record store she owned in Santa Rosa which is like 30 miles south of my house going towards San Francisco um, Kat calls me one day was, you know, everybody knows about me and the Slayer stuff. And, you know, I've still been touring with other things. And Kat asked me if I'll tour manage Death Angel for her. And, um, absolutely. Debbie Abano was, you know, legendary name that you've probably heard mm-hmm. was, was helping Kat. She wasn't technically managing Death Angel, but she was helping. And I knew Debbie as well from the scene. Um, so there you go. Death Angel is my first actual getting paid to be a tour manager gig. Okay, so uh, what album are we talking about? Uh, the first one. Okay, and yeah. what are it's your the stories? the first tour they've ever done. Uh, Ultraviolence? Yeah. Can you tell yeah. me some stories we, uh, about, about wow. Death Angel's first tour? We drive cross country. We leave, we leave uh, I feel like it was Rob's house in this van that they'd bought. We've got our gear in the back. I don't even think we had a trailer. Um, we may have though, but we're in this van. It's the band, me, um, the sound guy from uh, man. I'm totally spaced on his name. It's like a real hippie sort of guy, though older than the rest of us. Big beard, long hair. Driving cross country, we broke down. We're like 20 miles out. Oh my God. <laughs> we haven't even left. Break down. We, uh, me, and one of the other guys walk up. We see it's dark. It's nighttime, and we see this house with the lights on. Uh, like on the other side of the highway, so we walk down. There's like an underpass thing in the street, and we walk over, the, walk up to this house, and uh, knock on the door. And as we're walking up the stairs, I can remember like little religious signs, and we answer, <clears throat> knock on the door. I can use your phone. Like super religious people, like just Jesus stuff everywhere in the living room and stuff, like a full on like parody. Saturday Night Live episode, like way more stuff than any mortal, right. any non-church needs. Yeah, and uh, 
but they let us use the phone super nice and they're totally you know because you know we're long-haired guys you know and uh you know totally talking to us and from that religious you know what do you do you know they weren't like bad mouthing us exactly but just trying to get us to change our ways not even knowing what our ways are (laughs) you know for all they know we are religious but um yeah it just goes from there we get the van fixed we get towed somewhere they fix it we you know continue start again our our travel man second show we first show we did was at the milwaukee metal fest um sacrifice was at that show wow jill heath was tour managing sacrifice that's where i met jill that's awesome (laughs) to me that kind of stuff all the what you're saying king diamond headline trouble was on the show that's awesome that's like uh those are like my fairy tales right it's amazing and but see the thing is it was my fairy tale too you know like i had seen trouble because trouble had actually opened for megadeth the first Mm -hmm. couple of live megadeth shows and no one particularly cared for them because everybody was into the fast the megadeth thing yeah but there was a few of us who were into trouble and they were fucking great they were so good but three albums, but they didn't think, go right? over very well because of what they were and what they were up against. And you yeah. know, with this, you know the first Megadeth show, Carrie King on guitar, it's just like you know there was this fire and ice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so so I like that show for me was like I was looking forward to seeing them in their own element, kind of thing. You know, Milwaukee, it's basically hometown for them. They, you know, they they live closer to Milwaukee than I do to San Francisco, driving the show. So for trouble. me, yeah, trouble. So for me, it's like that's. You know they're going to be in their element and they're on a big stage. Well, I, when I now that I think about it, um, if it was Death Angel's first tour, Andy, Andy's the like drummer, twelve, is fourteen, <laughs> yeah, 14. She's he's 14. really young, yeah. So he he um, how, how did you get him? What was the whole routine you had to do when it came to playing like uh, over uh, I think over we twenty one clubs? I think we just kind of avoided it. Okay. Um, and I don't know. In fact, they were all underage at one point, right? I at that point? I would bet that they were all underage at that point. And I mean, eighty-seven. I mean, I'm twenty-five, I guess, at that point. So I'm kind of an old man. But yeah, it's like they're, yeah, they're all really young. They're all like because they're all 19? basically the same age anyway. I feel yeah. like Mark might be slightly older, but not by enough that it matters. Right. So yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if they're all underage at that point. So this ultra violence tour that was, uh, you know, I remember that time because they were touted as the next big thing. Yeah. Um, they were fucking great. They were so good. That album was... Oh, man. <laughs> so, and it stands the it's test still, of time. And that's a record that doesn't need to be remixed. A couple points, maybe. But generally speaking, it's like... And yeah. yet, it, it it goes to show you just how how the infrastructure for club touring was just not settled in yet. We drove to Cincinnati, uh, Newport, um, Kentucky, basically mm-hmm. Cincinnati. We showed up, and on the marquee outside, it said Dark Angel. Right, of course. I'm sure you got. <laughs> I, I was assuming that you guys probably they got that a few times. So nobody knew Death Angel was coming. Everybody thought it was Dark Angel. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. It, it wasn't like a mistake, like they wrote it wrong. It oh. was like they thought Dark Angel was playing. Oh People who God. bought tickets to the show thought they were buying tickets to see Dark Angel. It was Dark Angel. I, I think we were on tour with this band called Blood Feast. I could be wrong, from New Jersey. And the, and the first act on this show that night, and I might be wrong with this too, it was a band called Token Entry, who were more of a hardcore band from New York. I remember that. Who were a great band, but totally not, you know... We're still talking about an era where DRI is still a punk rock band at that point. Mm-hmm. You know, crossover 
was about to the happen. The crossover and the crossover album hadn't happened yet. Right. In some places, it had a little bit. Like Toby Rage and those guys. Andy Anderson was more punk rock than metal to a certain extent. Same with Toby. Um, there was a lot of, in San Francisco, a lot of overlap. But in Cincinnati, Newport, Kentucky... Boy, particularly, it's just like, man, they were so great. <laughs> we played uh, we played a Hellfest this past summer, in uh, France. Okay, and Voivod were playing the same day. Oh, cool! And the great thing about Hellfest is, I think they not only do they program the festival so friends, people in bands that they know are friends are playing on the same day. I think that's how Caius Lives actually ended up being Caius Lives. Because, oh, wow! Uh, Mondo Generator. Garcia plays Caius and Bramp York and the Bros were put on the, on same, the same stage on the same day together. <laughs> um, but uh, on this on this day that we were playing just this few months ago, Voivod's dressing room was right across from us, and right beside Voivod was Newstead. Oh, and wow. so you knew something Something's was going to happen. Yeah, exactly. They're trying to fig- you know they're just trying to let everything just settle and work its natural way. And of course, uh, Newstead ended up playing um, Voivod with right. Them. Uh, so he ended up playing that song. Your story now makes me remember the story I forgot, where my story was going. We were talking about Bailoff. Okay, yes. So we're Slayer driving. We do the we do the, the record store signing thing with Merciful Fate, mm-hmm. um, who I never saw play live until Metallica a couple years ago. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lars. Um, we're driving to Winnipeg, Canada. It's October. We're seven well there's seven of us there's we got four guys in tom's camaro we've got three guys in a two-seat u-haul truck so we're driving across montana we're listening to the first exodus album which isn't even technically released yet we're listening to to the the bootleg demo of it that of course we have and uh a Lesson in Violence is, is the song that's playing. We've just switched drivers. I'm in the back passenger seat. I lay my head down. Carrie King's driving. I lay my head down against the window to get some sleep because that's where you sleep in the Camaro. Mm-hmm. And the moment I close my eyes, I feel us go into a spin. And we've hit black ice, which we don't even know what black ice is at that moment. We find out a little bit later. We go into a spin. I just keep my eyes closed and probably clutched myself a little more. And, you know, we ultimately stop in, in the ditch and we all get out. The truck's nowhere to be seen. And uh, the four of us get out. Are you okay? I'm okay. You okay? I'm okay. Everyone's okay. Somebody takes a spill on the ice, just wham, under our ass. It's, you know, yeah, we don't know what it is. So we're not even thinking about that that's what caused the, the crash. Car's fine. It's kind of a, a gentle slope, so it's okay, but we're buried in the in like the gravel and stuff on the side of the road. There's no way we're getting out on our own. We don't think so at that moment. We can't get out. We flag somebody down. They help us. We finally do get the car out. They go off to get a tow truck. While they're gone, we manage to get the car out. So now we're up on the road. We're going to drive away, and we realize we don't know which direction we're going. We're in Montana. There's the moon's wherever covered by clouds maybe i don't know it's light enough that we can see but we have no idea which direction we're going we came we're spinning there's no spin marks really because of the ice when we went into the gravel it's it's almost perpendicular to the road there doesn't it doesn't look we just can't tell which direction we came from so we just randomly went let's go that way and we ended up we were right (laughs) so but that was that that record 
was just it was so anticipated and it was so amazing. We all just loved it. That's all we listened to on the entire drive across the U.S. and Canada was the first Exodus album and the first Voivode album. And we went from Toronto okay. to Montreal. That's why your story reminded me. Right. <laughs> we went from Toronto after Larry's. We go to Montreal. We're playing, I think, at the Spectrum. And we're all super psyched about playing with Voivode. And not so much playing with Voivode, but getting to see Voivode. And right. care that we're going to play with him, but we're going to see him. And then we get there, and this band called Witch Killer was the opening act. Okay. And they had little skulls hanging on their drum kits. Nice. Little, like okay. plastic skulls, and they were not very metal. Not as nearly as metal as they thought they were, and definitely not Voivod. Yeah. But we met all the Voivod guys that night because they came to the show. They spoke no English, not one <laughs> word. We spoke no French, and we had a great time. <laughs> it was amazing. That's great. <laughs> it's like, and there's pictures of that. Inside, inside of uh, Hello Waits. Oh, okay. Hello yeah. Waits has the one side of the inner sleeve. One side's all the lyrics, mm -hmm. and the other side just all kinds of pictures. The, yeah, collage. And there's pictures in there and the collage of, of us and the Voivod guys. Just doing out. sign language just to each like, other going, Man, yeah. I don't know. We just, you know, we just hit it off. It's like me and Blackie just for no reason. Like, you know, why, why do me and Blackie get along or hanging out? I don't know what the fuck he's saying. He doesn't know what the fuck I'm saying. I don't even drink. There's the other thing in the middle of all this. I don't do anything as far I don't drink, I don't do drugs, I don't smoke, I've never done anything. I'm just kind of nuts on my own anyway. Like, I've never even tried cocaine ever in my whole life. I've actually kind of curious about it a couple times, but my friends wouldn't let me. Well, you have good friends then. Yeah. And were yeah. those friends happened to be in Slayer? Some of them were, yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Not that Slayer ever tried cocaine, but if they had thought about trying cocaine, if they had but seen me like, thinking about it. But more steering you away from it. Yeah, that, that was that was the that thing. That should be yeah. like, that, people should know that although, side of Slayer. Although, the two times I got stoned in my life was both with them. <laughs> okay, well, so, that cancels that out. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. This is fantastic. I I love nothing better than sitting around bullshitting about old metal stuff. That's the worst thing about touring. Yeah. Is that once I started touring, I stopped getting to see bands play. And that's part of why I get so excited when I cross paths with you guys. Because, I mean, honestly, I love you guys. And from the moment I first heard you, and it's, I never get to see you. I get to, you know, you guys have been through town when, I, when I'm not home. And, and there's other bands like that, too. But you guys are one who I just fixated on like the moment I heard you. I was thinking about this last night, th that you guys are a band, it, it, this is how the thought started in my head, that Danko Jones is like ACDC to me in that I'm a huge fan, love everything you've done. Sure, there's the occasional song that I'm not, you know, that big of, you know, you can't like every note. Of course. But you're like ACDC where like every record has some great song. There's no record you have that doesn't have some great songs on it. And then I, I realized that you're first, you've been around for 17 years, blah, blah, blah. If you take 17 years of, when I think that about ACDC, I'm really only thinking about the first like seven years. And after that, I don't give a shit about a lot of their stuff, which mm -hmm. is not say they don't have some good songs on those records, but I just don't care anymore. You know what I mean? Right. So to a certain extent, I think that means I like you guys twice as much as I like ACDC because it's. <laughs> so you're in it. And for I the dressed whole up discussion. as Angus at dress up day in high school. Okay, so I'm... right, right. <laughs> well, thank you for that. Thank you very much, man. So it's a mutual thing here. But, well, uh, I should quit. I'll ramble on all day, and you have press to go do. So we should shut this thing down at some point. I do. Thanks a lot, Doug. You're welcome. Thank you. See you, man. See ya. <laughs>